Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to Off the Beat and Track podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. I've got to tell you, this episode is one of the the, the, the most interesting chats I've, I've had, and I've, I've recorded 380-odd episodes of this podcast now, and taking nothing away from all of the guests, I've had some delightful chats with so many incredible people. Today's guest, for somebody that has sort of been in, in so many areas of the, the, the music industry, uh, the, the stories are just I mean, I'll put it this way. When we finish this podcast and people ever ask you who your dream dinner guests are going to be, today's guest, John Altman, will be on that list. We talk about where do we, where, where do I even begin? Um, he, he's just written a book and I, I've not read it yet, but it's it's going to be straight on my list now because what I've, I'm, I'm recording this intro just after we finished our conversation. It's unbelievable what he's done. Um, playing in, you know, in music at a very young age, you know, finding himself on stages with, with Peter Green, you know, being there for, for these early, early, early performances by Hendrix, working with Bjork on It's So oh So Quiet, <sighs> working with George Michael, um, working with Monty Python, you know, his whistle is recorded... <laughs> on always look on the bright side of life. I don't want to tell you too much more because we, we go into it on this podcast uh, and, and, and so much more. Like it, the, the people that he has worked with, I, I mentioned it in the podcast, if we wanted to do a real, a real look at his career, it would take hours and hours and hours because he's just done so much and all of it is so incredible. Walk, working with like Hans Zimmer, you know, recently on, on, on Bond, it's it's unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable, and you're going to get a snapshot, uh, you know, and and it's and it's just a taste of what he's, you know, what he's done. So so go check out the book. Um, the links to the to buy that book will be in this uh, the show notes for this. Um, before we even get on with that, just a few thank yous. First of all, I'd like to thank um, Mark Baxter. Uh, thanks, Bax, because uh, former guest Bax uh, reached out to me and 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 asked if uh, I'd be interested in speaking to, to John. And, oh, my God, like, I can't thank you enough. Um, it, it, this, this was something special. 
and uh, and I, I just can't wait for for for, for you to hear it. Anyway, I'll calm myself while I do the rest of my thank yous. Thanks to Scroobius Pip, everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Um, thank you to Seventy Six for producing the podcast. Thanks, uh, biggest thanks always go to you lot for listening, supporting, and uh, and just getting behind the podcast. So 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 massive love to you lot. Um, if this is your first time listening, then uh, when you get to the end of this episode. Uh, then then go and have a look in the archives because there's like i say 380 odd episodes um where you can hear me talking to so many people you can hear me talking to the likes of where to start um i mean i've just mentioned uh hans zimmer there uh one of the uh one of hans's guitarists is niall marr son of johnny marr um and i had a great chat with niall marr um a, a while back that's a, a really interesting listen you can hear me talking to you know big heavyweights of the scene like foo fighters motley crew fat boy slim uh you can hear me chatting to suede idols uh ocean color scene uh blimey who else there's there's a list michael actors like michael smiley maxine peak um thomas turgoose uh, producer uh, Butch Vig, that's uh, that's a great chat. Getting to hear what it's like working with, you know, Nirvana producing, Nevermind producing, um, uh, the Smashing Pumpkins, Sonic Youth. Uh, yeah, there's and comedians. I've had some some great comedians on here. You can listen to me talking to Reese James, Ed Gamble, James Acaster. Like there's, there's there's stacks. So much going on in that back catalogue, and I always say the same names when I rattle them off. And there's. There's so many, so go and have a little rummage through, and I promise you, your your tick box at least ten that you're like, oh my god, I'd love to hear what, you know, what song was their, you know, their, their first record they bought, or what was the first song that they had an emotional response to. So yeah, go and have a, a rummage because they're they're all great, and uh, not because of me, obviously, my, my my lispy twang is good for nothing, but my guests have just always been delightful, uh, and no more so than today's. So please enjoy. Off the beaten track podcast with the wonderful John Altman. Right, I've got to take a quick break in this podcast because I've got some super exciting news. Off the beaten track podcast is proud to go into partnership with the Cacao Bar from Hotel Chocolat. That's right, the Cacao Bar is not a chocolate bar. It's all the best bits of a chocolate bar put into a really exciting new alcoholic range. That's right, gin vodka and a beautiful range of cream liqueurs so one of the big bonuses of this partnership is obviously i'm super thrilled to have hotel chocolat working with us but they sent me a great big box of this stuff and i'm telling you it's amazing go and check it out www.hotelchocolat.com or over on the socials at hotel chocolat but yeah in the coming months there's going to be opportunities for you to Get involved with competitions with us to win bottles of stuff. There's loads of exciting things coming soon, and I can't be more happy to say that this podcast is in partnership with the Cacao Bar from Hotel Chocolat. All right, let's get back to the podcast. It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whipping. Okay, we are recording. John, how are you today? I'm not too bad. I'm sort of uh, telling for cold, so uh, it's sort of going. And every morning, I wake up and think, "Great, it's gone." And then, no. <laughs> but uh, was it was it the dreaded it cold? Wasn't or the dreaded was it cold? No, I, I tested. It wasn't the dreaded cold. I, I presume that's uh, your your home where you're you're yeah. you're recording from today. 
if not, you've got uh, equally successful friends who have uh, a myriad of uh, of discs behind yes, them. Sir. That's that's quite some wall, John. I borrowed somebody's uh, office. <laughs> no, that's it's mine. They're all mine. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, um, I, I guess we'll get on to your, your, your work as the podcast unfolds. Um, but I'm going to ask you about somebody else's music to start mm-hmm. with. And we like to start the playlist uh, with this this question. So, so, John, can you please tell me the song that you regard as having the greatest ever intro, please? This is tricky because as an arranger, you know, my whole life has been dedicated to coming up with intros that are going to catch people's ears but um i narrowed it down to two and then finally to one um you can have the honorable mention as well well the honorable mention goes to cheryl lynn got to be real um Mm -hmm. the arrangement by my friend jerry hay and written by toto and produced by david page and it just grabs you from the the moment it starts and i had that for a while but then i switch to something someone i i never worked with but i actually knew socially and it's luther vandross never too much which again is the most magnificent intro and you hear a record and you think oh i wish i'd written that you know it's not not so much i'd written the song but i mean as an arranger you listen to the intro or the hooks and you think i'd love to have come up with that yeah that's correct me if I'm wrong. It literally starts with a ba 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 ba. Yeah, bum, bum, absolutely. Bum, bum, bum. Oh, perfect. Straight straight perfect. into the groove, and you know, before one minute's over, you're hooked. And then when he comes in, it's it's even better. Uh, and, and lyrically, it's it's one of them songs that I think you hear like three or four times, and I, I'm of an age where where that that record was a hit when I was in my my. My sole years, right. the uh, 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 you know, being fourteen, fifteen. Woke up today, looked at your picture just to get me started, and then it's just that the whole of that, the, the lyrics they're written in such a clever way. They're so hooky. Every single part, every of that part song of it just delivers, doesn't yeah. it? It's quite wonderful. I mean, it it's interesting because, as I say, I never got to work with him. He's somebody I'd love to have worked with, but he was a friend of my flatmate in Los Angeles when I was traveling between Los Angeles and London. And I sat and asked him once, he'd just been on the Grammys with a female singer who I won't name, but who I've never really particularly liked. And she sounded amazing. And I said to him, how did, you know, I saw you last night. How did you make her sound so good? And he said, I'm a backing singer. I can make anyone sound good. (laughs) Uh, that's true though it really is that is true i mean it's sort of he knew exactly what to do because that was his 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 job you know he was there with michael jackson he was there with that one and this one with david bowie everyone yeah it's if once you hear it once as well um you hear young americans and you know that that oh he was a young and you know that that's luther vandross however many backing singers are in that yeah he shines above them his voice is is absolutely spectacular well this is of course this is a thing i i primarily apart from a saxophonist i've worked as an arranger through pop music and film and a composer as well but um i'm always listening to if i hear a record i'm listening to you know who's that on drums 
Who's singing backing vocals? Who's playing that sax solo? Why is the guitar doing that? So it's, it's the nuts and bolts of the record. And people have said to me, doesn't it ruin your enjoyment of the record? And I say, no, on the contrary, it enhances it because you're getting, you're getting your teeth into it. You're not just hearing it as oral wallpaper. You're, you're really getting into the record and into the mind of the person who put it together. And it fascinates me. One of the things that, that I'm, I'm really excited to ask you, ask you this, because uh, I think you're the first guest I've had on here that's an arranger. <laughs> and and I, I often ask um, current pop stars and songwriters that, uh, 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 you know, that are playing the game a little bit with, and when I say that, I've asked this question 380 times now, John. I've never framed it right, so bear <laughs> okay. with me. And I'm I'm really interested to know that that how you approach it, and because we're living in a world now where attention spans are getting shorter and shorter and shorter, yeah. and and young people are consuming their music in various different yes. places, apps such as TikTok and things mm. like that. I watch my daughters just with their thumbs so rapid, and it's like they're not giving a song a chance to find its no. feet. It's like, and I know that you can go back to Motown, you can go back to, you know, even things like, you know, Never Too Much, which is, boom, you're in right from the beginning. But it feels like with pop music now, there's no fat on the bone. Everything is literally being looked upon as almost like a science. <laughs> yeah. And, and I wonder when you arrange now, does anything like that filter through into your, how you approach it? Well, the the difficult thing for myself and other arrangers is I think we're completely superannuated and, you know, dinosaurs of the business because okay. everything you said is 100% correct, you know. I can only equate in my own career to when I was writing loads and loads of commercials where you literally you're virtually doing the same thing as a TikTok video. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You've got 30 seconds, you've got to get in, get your point made, and get out. And when I've, I, I don't, I never really wrote jingles, let's say, but I did. And I mean, two of them in particular, I think people today would be able to sing if they're of an age. You know, you can do it when you're being it, which ran for about, 30 years <laughs> and Sheila's wheels, which was like wow. enormous, which I wrote, you know, and my brief was write something that will drive everyone mad. <laughs> and uh, it worked. Well, it worked. correct. You done that. <laughs> <laughs> but it made a, a new brand into the market leader. So it, it wow. fulfilled that purpose as well. But I have to admit at the time and subsequently, you know, I, I feel I've had a, a good career. And if yeah. I'm making an appearance somewhere and somebody says, and here is the composer of Sheila's Wheels, I thought, <laughs> oh, no, you know. Surely there's something a bit more substantial that, that sums up my life, you know, than that. But I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I'm proud of it, of course, you know, because how often do you write something that takes the whole country by storm? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's take you back for track two. Uh, and I'm going to ask you, please, uh, John, to tell me the first song that you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please. Well, this is, this is an odd one. I'm sure nobody else you've spoken to has got anything 
remotely resembling this, but um, I grew up in a musical family. My mother's four brothers were all well-known band leaders, and two of them were household names. Um, her old, one of her older brothers, Sid Phillips, had Britain's top Dixieland band and was premier jazz clarinetist, played with Louis Armstrong, um, was the best arranger in the country before the war. And her younger, younger brother, Wolf Phillips, led the band at the uh, London Palladium during the heyday of variety. So I grew up around music, and our family friends were Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole and Judy Garland. And they, wow. the Andrews sisters would come round to the flat, or Danny Kaye or Jack Benny, you know. So it was a very weird introduction into music. So... Was you aware of the enormity of it at that point? No, I mean, I just thought these were people who showed up at the house, you know, and yeah. And then you went to the cinema and there they were on the big screen. <laughs> but it, it's, it's like people who are told, you know, you grew up poor and say, well, I didn't know I grew up poor because I didn't have anything to compare it with. I grew up the way I grew up. And in retrospect, it was wonderful because... I started playing 78s at the age of two or three when, when I could reach them. You know, I wasn't throwing them across the room or <laughs> jumping up and down on them, you know. So um, the first record that really made an impact on me was uh, a record by the Charlie Barnett band called I Don't Want Anybody At All. And it's a song that was written by the great Julie Stein for Roy Rogers and Trigger. Okay. And the backstory or the later story, I got to work with Julie Stein. And I always fantasized that I would tell him this. And he'd go, How do you know that song? Nobody knows that song. And we'd bond. And he'd, you know, he'd play it and we'd be like bosom buddies immediately. Yeah. And then when I got to work with him, I trotted out my line, you know, I, I knew this song, first song I ever knew. I don't want anybody at all. And he looked at me and said, Nobody knows that song. How do you know that song? And he turned to everyone else and said, listen to this. You'll never believe it. And he sat down and started singing it and playing it at the piano. And he got to the middle and he said, I can't remember it. And I ran over to the piano and I sat down and I played it along with him. Wonderful. And at the end, he hugged me and he said, boy, we're going to get along. And we did. Perfect. Bosom values. Yeah, so that was really, <laughs> and honestly and truly, the first song I ever really knew. I knew it off by heart at the age of three. You know, when other kids are singing heads and shoulders, knees and toes, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm singing 1940s standards. <laughs> Glorious. Was, you said it was a musical house, and obviously, you know, the, the, the family were very musical. But with, with that in mind, was there sort of pianos and instruments laying around the house? There was a piano there, of course. Um, my mother played. She learnt by looking over her brother's shoulder which is how my other uncle learned how to play. And I sort of learned by looking over her shoulder as well. But I, I started formal piano lessons at seven, and I got pretty good. I got up to 11, and my teacher decided to get married. So they put me in with the school music master. And in the first lesson, he said, right, your fingering's all wrong, your posture's wrong, uh, your your technique is wrong, <laughs> your interpretation. We're going to start again from the beginning. And I went, oh, no, we're not. <laughs> and that, 
that was the last formal music lesson I had at the age of 11. And since then, I, you know, I fancied a saxophone. I asked my uncle to get me a saxophone. I taught myself it and I did the gig the next night. Wow. Terrifying. It must have been absolutely ghastly. And and where was home? Where was you going? I grew up in North London in Edgware. Okay. Happy, happy memories of that? Oh, yeah, terrific. And um, one, of, one of the great things, of course, was that, as I say, the age of 12, 13, I started joining bands because that's what you did in those days. If you played an instrument, you, you wanted to find like-minded people. And virtually everybody I worked with went on to be something in the music business somehow, you know, either as a producer or an engineer or a... Uh, a player you know one one local group turned into yes and one turned into free and one turned into uh one one guy wrote walking on sunshine and another guy wrote all the enduris hits you know so it was wow these are the people i grew up with that was my milieu if you like yeah that's uh that's a splendid gang isn't it well it was wonderful because i never felt it's interesting because when I was 12, 13, I joined a group of 16, 17-year-olds as, as a sax player. And now I can't imagine a group of 17-year-olds tolerating a 12-year-old. You know, you, hello, everybody, <laughs> I'm, I'm small. It's it just mind-boggling, you know, but they accepted yeah. me and um, I just went on from there, you know. I, I can't imagine, though, that there was many gangs of 17-year-olds that had access to that many saxophonists, though. That I'm was, sure. That uh... was the thing about the whole scene. You know, there were only about half a dozen people, because everybody who bought saxophones just wanted to be a jazz musician, basically. Yeah. Which I did. You know, I, I played jazz. But I, w- I was interested in pop music as well, and blues, yeah. and what became soul and funk. and. Yeah. I wanted to play that sort of music. I still do. I still want to play that music. So I gravitated to blues clubs and soul venues and soul singers. And I was able to forge relationships with people like Peter Green. And so when he left Fleetwood Mac, we joined up together and, you know, did a lot of gigs together. How was that? Amazing. You know, that... that, that's you know that is a phenomenal musician and and to walk away from a band yeah. you know at, at that point it's a brave move uh and 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 to then you know carry on and do what he'd done like how, how was it working with him at that point well i i loved it i mean i met him in i i spent a lot of because music was never going to really be a career for me it was fun so i would go and jam and in those days, you could go places and sit in with people. The, you know, the big stadiums and the managers and the minders and keep away, you can't, you're not on the guest list. That was all in the future. Those days, you'd go to the back room of a pub and you'd see Jimi Hendrix or Cream or Fleetwood Mac. So you got to know them all because you go to all their gigs. So when Peter left uh, Fleetwood Mac, he came down to Brighton do a benefit festival which I was also playing on and we played together and immediately it was musical rapport I don't think he got from you know his surroundings in blues bands because it was much more adventurous it was sort of psychedelic and free form and 
And uh, we bonded, and that was it for from May till December that year. You know, we worked together, we recorded together. It was it was for a twenty year old. It was out of this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. World. Incredible. Out of this world. Well, let's let's stay in the, the, the early years for track three. And I'm going to ask you, please, uh, John, to tell me the song that reminds you of your time at school, please. Well, that's an interesting one because I started at, well, City of London School. I got a scholarship um, in 1961. And the record that was big, let's say, that day, was um, Breaking Up is Hard to Do by Neil Sedaka. And whenever I hear that, I'm immediately transported to my first day at school. So it's still a great record. So uh, I'd say Breaking Up is Hard to Do by Neil Sedaka. Wonderful. You you, you said something a moment ago um, that, that, you know, early on, like music was never a career choice. It was... So at school, what was... what did you want to be? Well, I wanted to... I sort of thought I'd go into writing and English. I did an English degree at university, and then I went on to do another English degree, which I never finished, at London University, which was probably a big mistake because I had access to all the bands in London, so I was gigging every night. <laughs> it, that sort of took over. But um, I never thought of playing... It's very interesting when you get... What, I consider I got a gift because everything I've done in music is self-taught. And the thing about a gift is you can use it or you can abuse it. And I know lots of people who have natural talent who never do anything with it. But um, I would show up at clubs. I just wanted to play music, you know, so when I... I started learning flute and clarinet because it gave me more options. So I would go to folk clubs and I'd sit in with like John Martin or Bridget St. John or Nick Drake. Or, and then wow. I'd go to 
Dixieland gigs and play my clarinet. And then I'd take my sax to blues clubs and I'd be playing with blues singers. So without really thinking about it, I built up this huge network of musicians that, you know, quite a lot of them became cult figures now, like Nick. Absolutely. Nick. Right? Yeah. I mean, who knew? He was just a guy we played with. Peter Green and Nick Drake. I mean, th- these are. I know it's you know. it's mind-boggling, mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah. And the th- you don't you don't get to hear too much about these people because you know they're <clears throat> they were quite reclusive yeah. characters, wasn't they? And like yeah. and you know, I, I, I'm just thirsty to, <laughs> to know. I mean, you know, Nick, Nick Drake's an absolute hero of mine, and well, you know, like just give me a, a, a taste of well, what the, what it was like to work with was, him. He was never particularly into doing gigs. He hated them. But he was quite often there. Was that because he was He was shy? very shy, very introverted. I, now he'd probably be bipolar, diagnosed. Mm-hmm. But then he was just, like, weird, you know. Of course. Nobody really got to know him. Even, like, John Martin and Bridget St. John, who I, I <clears throat> stayed in contact with, said, oh, I didn't really know Nick. You know, I mean, I knew him, but I didn't know him well. <clears throat> Um, we would play some of his songs to try them out at John Martin's flat in Hampstead. And I'd play flute or sax with him. I never rehearsed with him. The whole thing about this was you you joined in. You know, you thought, oh, yeah, I can hear where it's going. And I don't remember rehearsing with anyone. That's the bizarre thing. It was Kevin Ayers, you know, oh, join in. Peter Green, right, we'll join in. There was never any, let's sit down and work something out. But one night I went to see John Martin at Westfield College and he was on the bill with Stefan Grossman, the Humble Bums, which was Billy Connolly and Jerry Rafferty. Mm-hmm. And top of the bill was a guy I'd never heard of called Elton John. This is 1970. And did, did, did he end up doing much afterwards? I, I, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, his, his, um, the opening act that night was Nick Drake, who'd been persuaded to perform. And everybody ignored him. You know, they were all at the bar drinking pints and shouting. And he looked at his feet and he played a few numbers. He just walked off. And I went back into the dressing room and he said, that's it, I'm, I'm finished. Never going to do another gig. And... John Martin and I started talking to him and saying, look, you know, you can't just stop. No, no, no. I've, that's my lot. That's my lot. No, 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 no. Well, you've got a gig next week. And we spent an hour talking to him. And it's actually in my diary that I had this conversation with him. My, I've got all my diaries from the 60s and 70s. And there it is, Nick Drake, you know, talk with Nick Drake. But uh, a week later, he, wow! A week later, he walked off stage, and that was the end of it. Never played again in public. And the postscript: um, I used to put together an all-star band for Sussex gigs, and I got John Martin to be in the band. And I said to John, "Who else can we get?" And he said, "Well, try Nick. You know, see if he's changed his mind." So I phoned him, and he just said, "I don't do that anymore," and hung up. You know, that was the end of that. That's the last conversation I ever had with him, I think. That was 1970. Yeah, October 70. That's right. Wow. Incredible. 
Okay. Um, so that's my that's me and Nick Drake, you know. And that, people ask me what was he like, and I said I just don't know, you know. I mean, I never, I never, yeah. I never sat with him and had a conversation about life, you know. <laughs> I, I I think that's why there's so much mystique around him. <clears throat> yeah. Um, because you speak to you know anybody that sort of you watch these documentaries and they're they're hard to get anything of real substance together because most people kind of echo what you said of like, I just didn't really get to know him. Like he was that insular and yeah. No, it it was. um, And also the thing was that he, he was talented, but so was John Martin and Bridget St. John and Andy Fernback and Gordon Giltrap and Stefan Grossman. And they were all around. So you didn't actually sort of, make time because you thought, ah, oh, well, same with Hendrix, you know, you think they're going to be around. Yeah. And then when it's, when they're gone or Amy, you know, when they're gone, you think, oh, I wish I'd spent more time with them. Wish I'd, yeah. you know, I'm burdened myself with them and got to know them that well. Yeah. But that's life, I guess, you know, you, 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 you don't know what's around the corner. And seeing Hendrix in those very early years in the clubs, like, was it apparent from, from, you know, I'm, I'm asking you your opinion on this because obviously you, you've listed so many people that were floating around in that mm. scene that you know if you wasn't gigging with, I'm sure you was watching and was very aware of. Like seeing Hendrix like very early on, was it apparent that there was something a bit special going oh, on? Oh, straight here? away, yes, yeah. I mean, he was unlike anyone in this country, definitely. Mm. And the interesting thing about him that doesn't get pointed out that often. He was literally plucked out of New York and dumped in London. And he didn't know a soul. He, he literally did not know anyone. So he would show up at gigs for other people, not, not his own gigs, because he wanted to get to know people. So, um, for example, a great guitarist who was in my band, John Etheridge, um, who was 19, he turned up at one of his gigs and, oh, I love your guitar playing. And they, they hung out and they become mates. <laughs> and Hendrix once said to him, what do you think of the guitar on my new album? Which was uh, Electric Ladyland, I think, by then. And John said, oh, I think it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> which, which he regrets to this day, you know. Why would a 19-year-old say something like that, you know? But no, he he, he had, I mean... Of that bunch of guitarists at the time, he he and Jeff Beck, I think, really stood out, and Peter in a different yeah. way. Yeah, of course. But but Jimmy was um, no, he he was definitely something, definitely. Okay. I'm going to ask you about record shops for track four, John, and uh, I'd like you to tell me, please, the first song you remember buying from record shop. <sighs> Again, this is this is possibly not anything you might expect, but um, okay. at the age of 11, because I got scholarship to um, City of London, my parents bought me a dance set record player. Okay. It was staple, staple baby boomer stuff. Everybody had one with, with the, the pink top and the, the white. Yeah, yeah, everybody remembers that. And I was very excited and I went out to a local record shop, and I bought three albums. I bought uh, Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto, Big Spiderbeck and His Gang, and the one I've chosen here, because it immediately became a huge favourite, it was um, The Dial Masters by Charlie Parker. 
and uh, Yardbird Suite on that. I got to immediately love. So, uh, although technically it's not a 45, I did. Yeah. Later, I started buying 45s, and I think Breaking Up is Hard to Do was one of the first ones I bought. Wonderful. You you mentioned, uh, you know, how young you was when you was, you know, starting to play in, in, in different bands and things like that. And then, you you know, you, you talk about that scene and, and th- these people that have gone on to become, like, you know, icons. Um, to kind of throw yourself in the mix there and to... And I, I guess you know early on, push yourself into these circles. And was you was you a confident young man? I never felt out of place. I never felt that I was putting myself above what I could do. Um, I guess I must have been. I mean, I, I wasn't extrovert and I wasn't sort of pushy. So I guess people who heard me play thought, "Oh, you know, he'd be good in the band," rather than me, you know elbowing my way in and saying listen to me yeah. i'm i'm so good i never had that that sort of attitude but i i always felt confident i mean one one early gig we did uh i always remember we were um on stage at a youth club and there were two guys watching me like a hawk i mean it was sort of i thought you know oh, saxophone player so I'm, I'm sort of directing everything towards them and wonderful wonderful I came off stage and one of them came up to me and said have you finished and I said yeah he said uh, good we want to play table tennis and you're using our table as a stage <laughs> oh back down to earth with absolutely a <laughs> so that sort of deflates you a bit <laughs> That'll keep you grounded. <laughs> well, if that doesn't, nothing else will, will it? <laughs> oh, that's incredible. <clears throat> um, but then to, you know, forge the, the you know, and, and create this, you know, incredible career that we'd, we'd have to speak for hours and hours and hours to kind of navigate through, you know, your achievements and your work uh, and, and, and the, the places that it's, you know, that it's taken you. At its very essence, the music industry is a very, very competitive and yeah. hard industry that can be brutal and, you know, lots yes. of people have to take knocks. Lots of people get yep. spat out the wrong side of it. You've had an incredibly uh, long and prosperous career within that industry. Confidence aside, are you driven? I don't know. I mean, the thing I always and particularly now I say even more is the great thing about the music business is I'm not in it. I never have been (laughs) sort of, but um, I I just was very lucky because everything spiraled from everything else. And I never had to search for work. I never had to, I was never in my heyday. I was never out of work at all. And possibly because I diversified so much. um, If, let's say record work was a bit quiet, I had commercials. If that was a bit quiet, I was doing TV. If that was a bit quiet, I was doing film. Uh, Unfortunately, none of them were actually really quiet, so I found myself doing everything at the same time. The only thing I think that could have suffered was the playing, because um, for a long time I would do the odd jazz gig, but I wasn't actively perpetuating you know the ability to get out and meet people and play 
And that's why we started our 10-room jam sessions, which turned into this mega event where everybody performed for nothing and Amy Winehouse and Joss Stone were in the audience. And, you know, it's an epic time in, in London. You, you just listed various sort of sectors of your work that, you know, were the plates that you would spin to, 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 to stay busy. Um, out of those, whether it be film, TV, commercials, playing, whatever, arranging, what, what do you most enjoy? It's interesting, and it sounds glib to say, but I first of all, I'd, I'd say everything that I worked on, I absolutely enjoyed working on. There was nothing where I was doing something and thought, do you know what? I really want, don't want to be doing this. So I've been, I was very lucky, but on the other side, if everything was taken away and they just said, right, you can only do one thing, it would be playing, definitely. Okay, I thought you might Yeah, because, that. I mean, we all, everybody who plays music starts playing music because they want to play music and they love music. Yeah. Um, writing, I love writing, I love composing, I love conducting but it's not what I wanted to do when I wanted to do something. So, you know, if it went, I wouldn't be, you know, hang dog miserable. But if I couldn't play anymore, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd sort of run up the walls. Yeah. Okay. Well, <clears throat> after school. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And uh, it's generally the time that you start to go out more and, uh, and venture into the world of clubs. <clears throat> so with that in mind, John, for track five, can you tell me the song that soundtracked your youth clubs? Please? Well, that's an interesting one because if I was in clubs, I, I was always on stage. Always. I mean, I, I didn't socially go to any clubs at all. I mean, I, I sound like the worst sort of bore in the world, but if I went to a club, I was playing literally almost all the time. The only, yeah. the only club I really went to where I might not play at all was uh, the Speakeasy, which was the musician's hangout, where yeah. you would be, you know, inveigled into some ghastly scenario by Keith Moon or... <laughs> Or Harry Nilsson. It was, you know, it was fun, but it, it I, I could escape. Let's say that. I, yeah. I mean, let, 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 let's not move on past that yet. So, again, g give me a snapshot into what that would have been like. Well, it was incredible. I mean, I, I started playing there when I was 16, 17, which I'm sure was totally illegal. And they started letting me in if I wasn't playing, which I'm also sure was totally illegal. <laughs> but you were rubbing shoulders with Art Garfunkel, Keith Moon, Harry Nilsson, Ringo Starr, Oliver Reed. You know, it was 
that was the atmosphere in the club, the, the Stones, and th- these were the people you mixed with. Uh, Hendrix was there a lot. Um, a few years later, I took the Whalers down to, to sit at Hendrix's table for dinner, the, his favourite table, which they said they met, made their trip, you know, never mind playing at the Lyceum. This, this was the highlight of their, their stay wow. in England. <clears throat> But, um, no, going back to your question, I was, um, basically, when I started playing, I was in blues bands, and we would play clubs, and obviously our repertoire was, you know, the classics, Sonny Boy Williamson, Muddy Waters, whatever, Mm -hmm. and the, the particular track I picked here, which fits into my own life as well, is um, Hoochie Coochie Man by Muddy Waters. And the backstory to that is the first band I played in, it was one of the main songs that we played. Seven years later, eight years later, um, the same band reunited at my 21st party to play that tune, backing Muddy Waters, who played at my 21st. Go figure. Uh, Muddy Waters played at my 21st birthday party. Jesus Christ. Yes, yeah. And we, <laughs> and we played a whole set, you know, together. I mean, apart from with his band, he played a whole set with my original band, singing all his hits. And he didn't, he didn't need to turn around God. and say, do you know this one? He just say, right, <laughs> mojo working. You know, off we go, you know. Hoochie Coochie Man, off we go. Unbelievable. You must have been walking on air. Oh, it, it's the greatest thing that could have happened. I mean, yeah, mind-boggling. And the only reason it happened was my roommate was social secretary at Sussex, and he booked him. And anybody of that age will remember getting food after nine o'clock in the evening was impossible. So they were all, he said to them, oh, come to my friend's birthday party. So they all trooped in, and they got, their meal, and we had gear set up, you know, drums, guitars. Rick Parnell of Spinal Tap brought his drum kit, and we had all the equipment set up, and no mics and no amps. So um, the roadies came in, and one of them, there was a girl at my party, an American girl, and one of them said, I, don't I know you? And she said, well, you look very familiar. And they spoke a bit. She'd been a marshal at Woodstock, which had happened the previous summer. And she looked after canned heat. And they were canned heat's roadies. So they said, oh, great to see you, great to see you. What's all all the equipment? And she said, oh, it's such a shame. They brought all this gear down, but they can't play because they haven't got any mics or amps. They said, oh, we'll fix that. And I'm standing in the room, and suddenly the back door's opening. I go, what's going on? And in they come with all this equipment, Mark, Rolling Stones, fragile. And they set it up. Wow. And off we went. <clears throat> Incredible. So essentially, Muddy Waters played your 21st birthday for the fee of some sausage rolls and birthday yeah, cake. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Absolutely. Go figure. Okay. Go figure. <laughs> and we got no photos and we got no recordings obviously today youtube and you know it'd been oh, yeah, everywhere 
But the funny thing is when I did my book launch the other night, there were three people there who were at that party. So I could tell that Oh really? I could tell that story and they could validate it. <laughs> sort of, I was there. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Um so for track six, I'm gonna take you home and I'm gonna uh, ask you please, John, to tell me a favourite song from an artist from your home county, please. Well, again, I'm being a bit naughty here. But um, okay. it's George Michael, Kissing a Fool, uh, which I arranged and play sax on. And one of the reasons I've chosen it, it, it goes back to what we were saying about local people and influencing and whatever. George's dad owned the restaurant next door, the pub where we rehearsed, which was owned by our drummer's father. And he would sit on the steps at the age of five listening to the band. And he told me that that inspired him to want to be a musician. So (laughs) that's the local thing coming into real play. You know, it's incredible that, that, um, you know, I mean, I, I didn't ask him to tell me that. He just came out with it during the recording. And in fact, he phoned me up originally and said, uh, I'd like you to work on Faith on the album. Uh, You're the only person I can think of who can do this, which is amazing. And we had a a great time. And what what was that like being in the studio with with George Michael? Arguably, he's most commercially successful. He's, you know. Yeah. What what was that like? It was great. I mean... We we ran the track. We only did the one track. I think we must have done about 30 takes of it. He sang every single one. He, so he was very, very hands-on. And he knew what he wanted. So if the piano player played something, he'd go, no, 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 I don't want it like that. I want it like this. I want it like... And I was a bit, a bit confused at the end of the first day's recording because I thought, he never actually turned around and said, I like that, or that's great, or well done. And I was a bit, you know, I was a bit concerned because I thought maybe he's just going through the motions and, you know, he's not happy or whatever. So I phoned Steve Sidwell, who is also a great arranger and trumpet player, who had known him since he was 17 years old. And I said to Steve... Um, what do I do? I don't know if he likes what we're doing or doesn't. And he said to me, well, you're, uh, you're going back tomorrow, aren't you? I said, yes. He said, then he likes it. Because if he didn't, he'd just say, it's not working. See you. So that, that's what it was like. So it was very easy. And then after we finished, he insisted that the, his band mime to our track on the tour because he said, you guys aren't going to play it as well as these guys. <laughs> So that's a nice validation. Okay, so for the last track, uh, I'm going to offer you an opportunity to be tastemaker, influencer, (laughs) uh, as the kids call it now. Um, And yeah, I'd ask you, John, please, to tell me a song that you think many people may not know that you would like them to hear, please. Well, this is an interesting one because it's it's so difficult to sort of think of something off off the top of my head. But one one thing... always springs to mind that I always try to play to people because people often ask me, you know, what's the perfect sort of pop record? And they're always surprised when I tell them my take on it because to me it's got everything and it's really, really simple. <laughs> 
I mean, it's probably, you know, unbelievably simple. And it goes back to the 50s. And it's um, produced by the great drummer Earl Palmer, who's the drummer on the track as well. Uh, star of the Wrecking Crew, plays on every Phil Spector record and became a good friend of mine and we played together in Los Angeles when I lived there. But um, it's it was a hit song and people still know it and I think it popped up on the commercial recently, but it's always being used places. But it, it's just, to me, it's a perfect pop record and they're always people are always surprised when I put that in front of them rather than some huge production because it, it's so yeah. simple. And the track is uh, Itty Bitty Pretty One by Thurston Harris. Yeah. But <clears throat> I, I think that you, you mentioned Yes earlier. Yeah. And like a, a band like that can make these incredibly complex records that that can go on for, you know, uh, uh, every track could last 20 minutes of these, you know, the, the, this journey within sound that, that you think so difficult and must have been like an absolute, you know, nightmare to kind of put that together and you know had different and then and then you hear something like that and just think well that's and people would dismiss that as throwaway but i think there is an equal amount or or if not more goes into creating a perfect pop song. i agree 100 percent. I, I think you're absolutely right you know i mean the the ability to let's say waffle is is so easy it was facilitated a lot by record companies who just literally said mm-hmm. you know here's a squillion dollars go away for two years and make a record and i think the thing about how certainly how they used to do it and in fact how we did it's so so quiet even you know one take singer singing live everybody out the door fantastic and it's how, how, how was that, though? Because that was... <laughs> well, it um, had to be like that because Bjork didn't show up till 10 minutes before the end. Oh, really? Yeah. Because, you know, again, this was Bjork, her most commercially successful. She totally. blasted onto the scene and, you know, post-sugar cubes and become this, you know, she was winning MTV Awards and was, was you know, this yeah. unique talent with... Uh, oh, yeah. Re- ridiculously incredible voice and then all of a sudden from making kind of quirky <laughs> electronic music makes this almost big band like incredible song yeah uh, and and it's like uh, how did that come about that that, that bjork that, that that track was put together well it was a, a b-side of a betty hutton record and one of her fans yeah. sent it to her and said uh, I think this would be great if you did it. And she went, yeah, why not? You know, so I got the call and I put the band together. And as you know, most recording sessions are in three-hour blocks. So we had booked 10 in the morning till 1 at Angel. And I'd written the arrangement for my big band. And we rehearsed it a couple of times and she wasn't there. And I said to the producer, you know, is she on the way? I said, well, she's just looking for her shoes and then she'll be with us. You know? <laughs> and it literally went 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 
And by then, I'd just given up, you know, because yeah. most of the band had been booked on other sessions for the afternoon. And uh, she came through the door at 10 to 1 and, you know, smiling and said, what are we doing? And I said, well, what we're doing is hopefully doing the, the track because they all go in 10 minutes. So, oh, okay. So she went into the vocal booth and uh, I went like that. And four minutes later, we had the record. One take. One take. Wow. No mistakes. No, you know, could we try that again? Nothing. First take. And what a vocal that is as well. Oh, yeah. It was live. And I'm conducting. The The band couldn't hear her. The drums, bass, guitar, and piano could hear her. Yeah. I could hear everyone. The brass could only hear the drums and bass. Nothing else. And she could only hear the rhythm. So, I mean, it's a, you know, all boxed off. And wow. Ah, oh. <laughs> and it worked. It worked. Whatever come out the other end was glorious. Yeah, and it was... still sounds it. It sounds like everybody just, you know, whirr, giving it one. Yeah. It's amazing. Incredible. Amazing. Well, we put together a Spotify playlist to accompany the podcast, John, and, uh, and we'll fill that with your choices and, and some of the other records that we've spoken about Fantastic. today. Um, so looking ahead to the rest of, uh, of this year, what's, what's happening? Well, obviously I, I, I did the, uh, my work on the Bond film, No Time to Die, for Hans Zimmer. I, I wrote arrangements for all the brass and then conducted all the film brass in the film and then lockdown happened so um yeah i thought finally because people have been driving me mad you know write a book write a book oh, one day i thought right well this is the day i sit down and i write and 290 pages later i've got my book so um the next few weeks or months are taken up by talking about that and uh, you know doing live events and playing a little bit and talking about telling stories. You know, there are so many that hopefully I don't repeat myself too much. But how do you, like, even start? Because when, when, when doing my research for this, as, as I said earlier, like, it would take hours to navigate through your your, your career and, and the tangents that it's gone uh, in and around. Um, like, how do you, when you, you know, how did you, I'm actually asking sort of practicalities of how did you start to kind of work out how you're going to write? Well, the interesting thing was um, I had in my head mapped out the idea that I would obviously start with my family background, then school days, then early bands, then um, getting into Hot Chocolate and Van Morrison, you know, Monty Python. And they were obvious things to do. But as soon as I got to the end of that little section of my life which let's say takes me up to 1980 1980 yeah 1981 uh I realized that I, I couldn't go chronologically anymore because I was diversified so much so I broke everything up into film work commercials television live gigs record arrangements and whatever else was left over from that 
and then it worked because I, I didn't necessarily have to be chronological about it. I could, I could be thematic and say, well, I did lots of TV drama. I'm going to talk about TV drama. Then I did lots of variety specials. So I'll talk about variety specials, which don't exist anymore. So I would be producing Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran and people that you wouldn't associate with my work, you know. And and then I went into the fact that I was the music producer for Saturday Night Live, the uh, Ben Elton, Harry Enfield show. Mm -hmm. So all the groups that I worked with on that, like Slade and the Moody Blues, Nils Lofgren and the Damned and the Stranglers, you know, you never knew who was going to come in. And that was exciting because you were produ- you weren't necessarily arranging anything, but you were functioning as a producer for television. And what an anarchic show that was! It was a great well. show. Uh, it was a great show, and I even did uh, Tis Was, you know, which was even more anarchic. Well, speaking of sort of you know uh, 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 anarchic people that kind of you know buck the the, the, the trending comedy, you, you you mentioned it a moment ago, and there's no better way to kind of close this this podcast than than referencing probably the most iconic closing scene in a film ever, which is <laughs> Life of Brian, and always look on the bright side of life. Just can we just um, before we wrap it up? I'm, I'm aware of how much sort of time I've, I've taken up yours already, John. But just give us a snapshot as to what what that was like working with Python then. Well, it's it's always it's it's been an ongoing thing, and I'm I'm really happy to say you know I'm still close with all of them, which is unbelievable. You know, nearly 50 years later. But um, very briefly, I started out with them by appearing on an album of theirs which was matching tie and handkerchief and a lot of people today won't realize that pre-vhs machines the only way you would experience a monty python sketch was by buying a record because they didn't repeat them on tv they didn't you couldn't keep them so you had to go and buy the record so the record sold well and i went to appear on matching tie and i fell in with all of them and got friendly And then for the next few years, I was on the inner circle with a couple of other guys, Andre Jacquemin and uh, John Dupre. And we were the go-to music people for Python. And so I did the Rattles and I did the live shows, the Amnesty shows, the Secret Policeman's Ball. And then I was a Mountie in the Lumberjack song you know no way oh yes you can you can see me on <laughs> singing away on i'm a lumberjack on uh wonderful the 40th anniversary show <laughs> but um i got involved with brian and they didn't have an ending and i was at script meetings so i saw all this going on i don't know why i was at script meetings but i was and i saw you know well maybe he'll escape maybe he'll this maybe he'll that Whatever, whatever. And Eric wrote a little song and he phoned me and said, I've got a little song, I think it'd be good for the end. He sent it to me. And the other guys were very much, uh, ooh, it's not very good. No, I don't know. 20 seconds would be enough. <laughs> sort of. And Eric just said, go for it. And I thought, well, because it was felt like an old Hollywood musical number, I'll give it the whole Hollywood treatment, which I did. Yeah. And that that became the end of the film. And George Harrison produced the record. 
and he loved it, you know, and it, it just, it went from there. And then suddenly it was an anthem for football grounds. And then it was suddenly a funeral song. Then it was, yeah. And it's just lived and lived and lived. And to me, the thing about it, the important thing, because obviously I arranged it and conducted it. And I'm also one of the whistlers with Fred Tomlinson singers. So I'm on the soundtrack. <laughs> But the important, the important thing for me was always that um, the music, the musical arrangement had to be serious. You couldn't make it jokey because mm. people know it's a joke. So somehow giving it a dignity enhances the joke. And if you yeah. just went, rrr, 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 it, it would just be a you know waste of time. It would be like yeah. those Not the Nine O'Clock News ABBA sends up, which are very funny, yeah. but you never want to see them again. You don't think, of oh, I must go and revisit that, or Kate Bush, you yeah. know, oh, I must go and see that one again. But Brian, it's the perfect ending, and um, people absolutely love it still. You know, it it's lives on and on and on. It'll go on much longer than me. <laughs> John, it's been an absolute delight. To, to sit and just listen to you talk it's been uh, an incredible experience i can't thank you oh, my enough. pleasure if john if people want to find out more about the book um where's the best place to go well right? it's called hidden man it's uh equinox books publish it and there's a site their site has got a whole page on it with quotes i i can't believe the people who sent me quotes but um unbelievable you know um about me writing the book and i got um quincy jones hans zimmer jeff goldblum uh michael palin terry gilliam john batiste joss stone jim carter from downton abbey they've all written something for the book so beautiful amazing it, i'm oh, i'm stunned well. <laughs> Totally. And so the website will be Equinox Books website. Equin if you put in Hidden Man Equinox Books, yeah, it's all okay. there. We'll, and it's we'll, on we'll find the link. It's on Amazon and all the obvious places that it would be. Wonderful. We'll put the link to uh to it in the, the, the notes for this show. So uh, I'm sure that when people have finished listening to this, like you're gonna make a lot more sales there because it's just a snapshot <laughs> well, of, there's of an so, incredible career. So many stories, you know, and there's something for everyone because I, you know, I go back to Charlie Chaplin and I go up to Pharrell and John Legend you know, with everybody in between. Amazing, amazing, John. Thank you so much for your time, mate. It's my pleasure. See, what did I tell you? Unreal, the hidden man, the book. I mean, go and buy it because that was just a taste, as I'm sure you're aware of. Oh, the stuff he's done is just different level. Um, the minute I, I, I pressed up, I, I messaged Bax, who, who put this together, and was like, mate, like, thank you so much. Because firstly, what a wonderful human. And secondly, his stories are off the fucking scale. Uh, Monty Python, Jimi Hendrix, Peter Green, like Nick Drake, Hans Zimmer. James Bond, like, and trust me, it is just a taste. Like, go and get the book, um, and yeah, and, and and read about just an incredible journey of uh, of, of just a, a really lovely human being. Um, 
as mentioned at the beginning, go check out the back catalogue. Um, give us a like, love, share on the on the socials. And, uh, and yeah, huge love, people. Stay safe. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. It's Off The Beat & Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Give me Stu Whipping. Eat a point.